Chapter Three of the Witch of Salem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Witch of Salem by John R. Music. Chapter Three The Indented Slave. Heaven from all creatures hides the book of fate. All but the page prescribed their present state. From brutes what men, from men, what spirits know? Or who could suffer being there below? The lamb thy riot dooms to bleed today. Had he thy reason, would he skip and play? Pleased to the last, he crops the flowery food and licks the hand just raised to shed his blood. Pope. That which was most dreaded in New England and all the American colonies came to pass. Charles II died, and his brother, James, Duke of York, was crowned King of England. On ascending the throne, the very first act of James II was one of honest but imprudent bigotry. Incapable of reading the signs of the times, or fully prepared to dare the worst, that those signs could portend, James immediately sent his agent Carlyle to Rome to apologize to the Pope for the long and flagrant heresy of England, and to endeavor to procure the readmission of the English people into the communion of the Catholic Church. The Pope was more politic than the King, and returned him a very cool answer, implying that before he ventured upon so arduous an enterprise, as that of changing the professed faith of nearly his entire people, he would do well to sit down and calculate the cost. The foolish king, who stopped at nothing, not even the mild rebuke of the Holy Father, would not open his eyes, and, as a natural result, he was soon cordially hated by nearly all of his subjects. His brother had left an illegitimate son called the Duke of Monmouth who was encouraged to attempt to seize the throne of his uncle. At first the cause of the duke seemed prosperous. His army swelled from hundreds to thousands, but, owing to his lack of energy and fondness for pleasure, he delayed and gave the royal armies time to recruit. He was attacked at Sedgemoor, near Bridgewater, and owing to the perfidy or cowardness of Gray, his cavalry general, the rebels were defeated. Monmouth was captured, and his uncle ordered him beheaded, which was done. Then commenced the most barbarous punishment of the rebels ever known. An officer named Kirk was sent by the king to hunt down the Monmouth rebels, or those sympathizing with them. His atrocious deeds would fill a volume, and are so revolting as to seem incredible. Another brutal ruffian of the time was Judge Jeffreys. The judicial ermine has often been disgraced by prejudiced judges, but Jeffreys was the worst monster that ever sat on the bench. He hung men with as much relish as did Berkeley in Virginia. His term was called the Bloody Aziz's. And to this day the name of Judge Jeffreys is applied in reproach to the scandalous ruling of a partial judiciary. The ascension of James II 
made fewer changes in the American colonies than was anticipated. Perhaps, had his reign been longer, the changes would have been greater. The suppression of Monmouth's rebellion gave to the colonies many useful citizens. Men connect themselves, in the eyes of posterity, with the objects in which they take delight. James II was inexorable toward his brother's favorites. Monmouth was beheaded, and the triumph of legitimacy was commemorated by a medal representing the heads of Monmouth and Argyle on an altar, their bleeding bodies beneath with the following, Sicaras etc. Tumor. Thus we defend our altars and our throne. Lord Chief Justice is making his campaign in the West, wrote James II to one in Europe, referring to Jeffreys' circuit for punishing the insurgents. He has already condemned several hundred, some of whom we are already executed. More are to be, and the others sent to the plantations. The prisoners condemned to transportation were a saleable commodity. Such was the demand for labor in America that convicts and laborers were regularly purchased and shipped to the colonies, where they were sold as indented servants. The courtiers round James II exalted in the rich harvest which the rebellion promised, and begged of the monarch frequent gifts of their condemned countrymen. Jeffreys heard of the scramble, and indignantly addressed the king. I beseech your majesty that I inform you that each prisoner will be worth ten pound, if not fifteen pound apiece, and, sir, if your majesty orders these, as you have already designed, persons that have not suffered in the service will run away with the booty. Under this appeal of the Lord Chief Justice, the spoils were divided, and his honor was in part gratified. Many of the convicts were persons of family and education, and were accustomed to ease and elegance. Take all care, wrote the monarch, under the countersign of Sunderland, to the government in Virginia. Take all care that they continue to serve for ten years at least, and that they be not permitted in any manner to redeem themselves by money or otherwise, until that term be fully expired. Prepare a bill for the assembly of our colony, with such clauses as shall be requisite for this purpose. No legislature in any of the American colonies seconded such malice, for the colonies were never in full accord with James II. Tyranny and injustice peopled America with men nurtured to suffering and adversity. The history of our colonization is the history of the crime of Europe, and some of the best families in America are descended from the indented servants of the old world. In Bristol, kidnapping had become common, and not only felons, but young persons of birth and education were hurried across the Atlantic and sold for money. Never did a king prove a greater tyrant or more inhumane and cruel than James II. After the insurrection of Monmouth had been suppressed, all the sanguinary excesses of despotic revenge were revived. Gibbets were erected in villages to intimidate the people, and soldiers were entrusted with the execution of the laws. Scarce a Presbyterian family in Scotland, but was involved in proscription or penalties. The jails were overflowed, and their tenants were sent as slaves to the colonies. 
maddened by the succession of murders, driven from their homes to caves, from caves to morasses and mountains, death brought to the inmates of a house that should shelter them, death to the benefactor that should throw them food, death to the friend that listened to their complaint, death to the wife or parent that still dared to solace husband or son, ferreted out by spies, hunted with dogs. The fanatics turned upon their pursuers and threatened to retaliate on the men who should still continue to imbrue their hands in blood. The council retorted by ordering a massacre. He that would not take the oath should be executed, though unarmed, and the recusants were shot on the roads, or as they labored in the field, or stood at prayer. To fly was admission of guilt, to excite suspicion was sentence of death, to own the covenant was treason. Sometimes the lot of an indented slave was a happy one. Hundreds and thousands of fugitives, flying from persecution, came to the New World, while thousands of others were sent as convicts. Virginia received her share of the latter. One bright spring morning, a ship from England entered the James River with a number of these indented slaves to be sold to the planters. Notice had been given of the intended sale, and many planters came to look at the poor wretches, huddled together like so many beasts in an old shed, and guarded by soldiers. Mr. Thomas Hull, a planter of considerable means, and a man noted for his iron will, was among those who came to make purchases. "'Well, Thomas, have you looked over the lot?' asked another planter. "'No, Bradley, have you?' "'Yes, though I am shortened in money and unable to purchase today.' "'Well, Bradley, what have you seen among them?' "'There are many fine, lusty fellows, but I was most interested and grieved in one.' "'Why?' He is a man who has known refinement and ease, is perchant thirty-five, and has with him a child. A child? Yes, a maid not to exceed ten years, but very beautiful, with her golden hair and soft blue eyes. Is the child a slave? No. Then wherefore is it here? asked Hull. His is truly a pathetic story, as I have heard it. It seems he was a widower, with his child wandering about the country, when he fell in with some of the Duke of Monmouth's people and enlisted. He was captured at Sedgemoor and condemned by Jeffreys. The child was left to wander at will, but by some means she accompanied her father, managed to smuggle herself on shipboard, and was not discovered until the vessel was well out to sea. Then the captain, who was a humane man, permitted them to remain together, to the end of the voyage. She is with her father now, and a prettier little maid I never saw. By the mass, I will go and see her, cried Hull. If she be all you say, I will buy them both. But she is not for sale. Wherefore not? She was not adjudged by the court. With the cold, heartless laugh of a natural tyrant, Hull answered, It will be all the same. He who purchases the father will have the maid also. He went to the place where the slaves were confined, and gazed on the lot, very much as a cattle dealer might look upon a herd he contemplated purchasing. His gaze soon fastened on a fine, manly person, in whose proud eyes the sullen fires 
were but half subdued. He stood with his arms folded across his broad chest and his eyes fixed upon a beautiful girl at his side. The captive spoke not. A pair of handcuffs were on his wrists, and the chains came almost to the ground. But slavery and chains could not subdue the proud captive. Hull delighted in punishing those whom he disliked. He was a papist at heart and consequently in sympathy with James II. So for this indented slave he incurred from the very first a most bitter dislike. When the slave was brought forth to be sold, he bid twelve pounds for him. This was two pounds more than the required price, and he became the purchaser. "'You are mine,' cried Hull to the servant. "'Come with me.' The father turned his great brown eyes, dim with moisture, upon his child, and Hull, interpreting the look, added, "'Hold, I will buy the maid also.' "'She cannot be sold,' the officer in charge of the slaves answered, "'unless the master of the ship sees fit to sell her for passage money.' The master of the ship was present and declared he would do nothing of the kind. I will take her back to England, if she wishes to return, he added. The child was speechless, her great blue eyes fixed upon her father. What will you do with the maid? asked Hull, who, having the father, felt sure the child would follow. I will return her to England free of charge, if she wills it. Who will care for her there? asked Hull. Do you know her relatives? No, all are strangers to me. The father, with his proud breast heaving with tumultuous emotion, stood silently gazing on the scene. He was a slave, and he remembered that a slave must not speak unless permission be granted to him by his master. But it was his child, the only link that bound him to earth, whose fate they were to decide, and, had he been unfettered, he might have clasped her to his bosom. "'Speak with the maid,' suggested a bystander and see if she has a friend in England who will care for her. The master of the ship went to the bewildered child, and taking her little hand in his broad palm, said, Sweet little maid, you are not afraid to trust me. She turned her great blue eyes up to him, and in a whisper answered, I am not. Have you a mother? No. Have you any friends in England? Not since my father came away. Where did you live before your father enlisted in the army of Monmouth? We traveled. We lived at no one place. Have you no friends or relatives in England? None. The captain then asked permission to talk with the father. The permission was given by Hull, for he saw that his slave had the sympathy of all present, and it would not be safe to refuse him some privileges. The master of the vessel and the magistrate who had superintended the selling of the slaves for the crown found the slave a very intelligent gentleman. He said he had but one relative living so far as he knew. He had a brother who had come to America two or three years before, but he had not heard from him, and he might be dead. Do you know anyone in England to whom your child could be sent? I do not. What were you doing before you entered the Duke's army? I was a strolling player, the man answered, his fine, tragic eyes fixed firmly on the officers. My company had reached a town one day, in which we were to play at night, 
and just as I was getting ready to go to the theater, the Duke of Monmouth entered. He was on his way to Sedgemoor, and I was forced to join him. My child followed on foot and watched the battle as it raged. When it was over, I could have escaped had I not come upon Cora, who was seeking me. I took her up in my arms and was hurrying away when the cavalry of the enemy overtook me, and I was made a prisoner. The simple story made an impression on all who heard it, save the obdurate master. The magistrate asked the slave what he would have done with his child. Let her stay in the colony until my term of service is ended. Then I will labor to remunerate any who would keep her. At this, Hull said he would take the maid, and she might always be near the father. All who knew Hull looked with suspicion on the proposition. A newcomer had arrived on the scene. This was a young man of about the same age as the prisoner. He was a wealthy Virginian named Robert Stevens, noted for his kindness of heart and charity. He did not arrive on the scene until after the indented slave had been sold, but he soon heard the story of the captive from Sedgemore and his child. Robert Stevens' heart at once went out to these unfortunates, and he resolved on a scheme to make the father practically free. "'Has the slave been sold?' he asked. "'He has, and I am the purchaser,' answered Hall. "'How much did you give for him?' Twelve pounds. "'I will give fifty. "'He has already sold,' repeated Hull, exultingly. "'He despised Robert Stevens for his wealth and popularity. "'To have purchased a slave whom Robert Stevens wanted "'was a great glory for Hull.' "'Fear not, good man,' said Robert to the unfortunate slave. "'I have money enough to purchase your freedom.' "'Unfortunately, those words fell on the ears of Thomas Hull, "'and he answered, "'It is the order of the king that all serve their term out "'and none be allowed to purchase their freedom.' "'I will give you one hundred pounds for the slave,' cried Robert. "'No, a thousand. "'Robert Stevens.' For some reason, you want this slave restored to liberty. No, sell him to me, and he shall serve out his term. I understand your plan. You would make his servitude a luxury. You cannot have the slave for a hundred times the sum you offer. By law, the convict is fairly mine until he hath fully served his term. I am not so heartless as you deem me. His child can go to my house, where she will be cared for. No, 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 cried the captive, his eyes turned appealingly to Robert Stevens. You take her, you take her. Go with him, Cora. The child sprang to the side of Robert Stevens, for already she had come to dread the man who was her father's master. Hull's face was black with rage. He bit his lips, but said nothing. With his slave, he hurried home. The name of the slave was George Waters and he was soon to learn the weight of a master's hand. Thomas Hull was the owner of Negro slaves, as well as white indented servants, and he made no distinction between them. George Waters, proud, noble as he was, was set to work with the filthy Negroes in the tobacco fields. The half-savage barbarians, with their ignorance and naturally low instincts, were intended to humiliate the refined gentlemen. "'You is one of us,' said a negro. "'What am your name?' "'George Waters.' 
George, George, that's my name, too, said the Negro, leaning on his hoe. Do you suppose we is brothers? No. Well, why is we both called George? I don't know. The overseer came along at this moment and threatened them with the lash if they did not cease talking and attend to their work. Again and again was the proud George Walters subjected to indignities until he could scarcely restrain himself from knocking Martin, the overseer, down and selling his life in the defense of his liberty. But he remembered Cora and resolved to bear taunts and indignities for her sake until his term of service was ended. His only comfort was that his child was well cared for. He had been a year and a half on the upper plantation of Thomas Hall, and though he had demeaned himself well, he had done the labor of two ordinary men, though he had never uttered a word of complaint, no matter what burdens were laid upon him, his natural pride and nobility of character won the hatred of the overseer. The fellow had a violent temper and hated George Waters. One day, from no provocation at all, he threatened to beat Waters. The servant snatched the whip from his hand and said, "'I would do you no harm, sir. I have always performed my tasks to the best of my ability.' and never have I complained. But if you so much as give me one stroke, I will kill you. There was fire in his eye and an earnestness in his voice which awed the cowardly overseer, but at the same time they increased his hatred. He resolved to be revenged and reported to Hull that the slave was rebellious. Hull permitted George Waters to be tied to a tree by four stout Negroes whose barbarous natures delighted in such work, and the overseer laid a whip a dozen times about his bare shoulders. No groan escaped his lips. For three days he lay about his miserable lodge, waiting for his wounds to heal, and meanwhile made up his mind to fly from the colony. He had heard that a society of friends, or Quakers, had formed a colony to the north, which was called Pennsylvania, and he knew that they would succor a slave. As soon as he was well enough, he stole from a cabin a gun, a knife, and some ammunition, and set out in the night to find the plantation of Robert Stevens, where Cora was. His escape was discovered, and the overseer, with Thomas Hall, set out in hot pursuit of the fugitive. At dawn of day, they came in sight of him in the forest on the lower James River, and, being on horseback, gave chase. "'Keep away, keep back,' cried the fugitive, "'or I will not answer for the consequences,' and he brandished his gun in the air. The overseer was armed with pistols, and drawing one, galloped up to within a hundred paces of the fugitive, and fired, but missed. Quick as thought, George Waters raised his gun, and taking aim at the breast of his would-be slayer, shot him dead from the saddle." The body fell to the ground, and the frightened horse wheeled about and ran away. Thomas Hull, who was a coward, awed by the fate of his overseer, turned and fled as rapidly as his horse could go. Horrified at what he had done, and knowing that death, sure and swift, would follow his capture, George Waters turned and fled down the James River. Some guardian angel guided his footsteps, for he found himself one night almost starved, faint, and weak, 
at the plantation of Robert Stevens. George was driven to desperate straits when he accosted the wealthy planter and asked for food. Robert recognized him as the father of the little maid whom he had taken to his home as one of his family. "'I have heard all, and you must not be seen,' said Robert. Then he conducted him to an apartment of his large manor house. "'Are you hungry?' "'I am starving.' Robert brought him food with his own hands, and, as he ate, asked, "'Do you want to see Cora?' "'May I?' "'Yes.' "'I'm a slave, and a—a—' a, "'I know what you would say. Do not say it, for you slew only in self-defense. "'But I will be hanged if found. "'You shall not be found, heaven help me, "'if I shield a real criminal from justice, "'but he who strikes a blow for liberty is worthy of aid.' "'After the fugitive had, in a measure, satisfied his hunger, "'Robert said, "'You will need sleep and rest, after which you must prepare for a long journey. Whither shall I go? To Massachusetts. I have relatives in Salem, where you will be safe. Safe? He repeated the word as if it were a glorious dream, a vision never to be realized. Yes, you will be safe, but as you must make the journey through a vast forest, you will need to be refreshed by rest and food. The wild-eyed fugitive with his face haggard as death, seized the arm of his benefactor and said, They will come and slay me as I sleep. Fear not, my unfortunate brother, for I will put you in a chamber where none save myself shall know of you. And my child? She shall accompany you to Salem. The fugitive said no more. He entrusted everything to the man who had promised to save him. He was led up two flights of stairs when they came to a ladder reaching to an attic, and they went up this attic ladder to a chamber where there was a narrow bed with soft, clean sheets and pillows, the first the prisoner had seen in the new world. "'You can sleep here in perfect security,' said Robert. "'I will see that you are not molested by anyone.' The way-worn traveler threw himself on the bed and fell asleep. Stevens went below and told his wife of the fugitive. Esther Stevens was the daughter of General Goff, the regicide, who had been hunted for years by Charles II for signing the death warrant of the king's father and serving in the army of Oliver Cromwell, and Mrs. Stevens could sympathize with the political fugitive. They ran some risk in keeping him in their house, but as a majority of the colonists had been in sympathy with the Duke of Monmouth, for James II had few friends in Virginia, and Thomas Hall none. Their risk was not as great as it might seem. The fugitive late next day awoke, and Robert carried his breakfast to him. The colony was wild with excitement over the escape of an indented slave and the killing of the overseer. Thomas Hall represented the crime to be as heinous as possible, to arouse a sympathy for himself and a hatred for the escaped slave. Some people were outspoken in the belief that the escaped slave should be killed. Others were in sympathy with him. They reasoned that Hull had been a hard master, and that this poor fellow was no criminal but a patriot, for which he had been adjudged to ten years' penal servitude. Many of the searchers came to the mansion house of Stevens, but he managed to put them off the track. 
For five days and nights, George Waters remained in the attic. On the sixth night, Robert Stevens came to him and said, You must now set out on your journey. But Cora, can I see her? She will accompany you. Here is a suit of clothes more befitting one of your rank and station than the garb of an indented slave. He placed a riding suit with top boots and hat in the apartment. When he had attired himself, Robert next brought him some arms, a splendid gun, and a brace of pistols of the best make. You may have need of these, said the planter. You will also find holsters in the saddle. And does Cora know of this? I have told her all. The father shuddered. In the pride of his soul, he remembered that he was a slave, had felt the lash, and was humiliated. Under a wide-spreading chestnut near the planter's mansion stood three horses ready saddled. A faithful negro slave was holding them, and the little maid, clothed for a long journey, awaited her father's arrival. A fourth horse was near, on which were a pack of provisions and a small camping outfit. The father and child met and embraced in silence, and, had she not felt a tear on her face, she would hardly have known that he was so greatly agitated. "'We will mount and be far on the journey before the day dawns,' said Robert. "'Do you go with us?' asked George Waters. "'Certainly. I know the country, and will guide you beyond danger.' They mounted and traveled all night long. At early dawn they halted, only to refresh themselves with a cold breakfast, and pushed on. Three days Robert journeyed with them, and then, on the border of Maryland, he halted and told them of a land now within their reach, where the Quakers dwelt. There they might rest, until they were able to go to Massachusetts. He gave a purse of gold to the father, saying, Take it, and may God be as good to you as he has been to me. The fugitive murmured out some words of thanks, but his benefactor wheeled his steed about and galloped away, lest the words of gratitude might fall on his ears. "'Let us go on, father,' said Cora. For days Cora Waters could never tell how long they journeyed, until at last, on the banks of the Delaware, they came upon a small town where dwelt a people at peace with all the world, the Quakers, and the tired child and her father were taken in, given food and shelter, Christian sympathy, and assured of safety. End of chapter 3 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas